I'm Austin Basis, and this is Actors Speak, where actors speak and I listen. Welcome back to part two of my interview with actress Polly Lee as we continue the conversation. Is there a favorite medium that you have? Do you enjoy theater more? Have you, uh, do you enjoy audiobooks more? Like, what do you enjoy most? Audiobooks. I've done them, I guess, for like 10 years now. I love doing them. It's very direct storytelling when you're doing fiction. Even when you're doing nonfiction, you are literally telling a story. (laughs) Um, And pre-COVID times, I was telling them to engineers and sometimes also a director. And in COVID times, I'm doing them just in the solitude of my own closet, surrounded by all kinds of technical things that I have no idea what the fundaments are. If they break down, I'm like, Okay, well, I guess today's fucked. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I would say that the beauty of audiobooks is that you're telling the whole story. The ones that I do, there are multicast ones, but on the whole, I'm the narrator. I'm the protagonist. I do a lot of romances, which is kind of soap operatic. Like, you know, there are stock characters. It's comedia. It's, you know, there's a there's a hero, there's a heroine, there's a baddie, there's a you know maid, there's a butler, there's all kinds of fun people. And it's very, uh, simple makes it sound stupid. It's not stupid, it's, um, but simple. It's very straightforward storytelling. Like, um, you know, like Barbara used to say, a simple scene. Someone wants something, they try to get what they want, they get it or they don't, it's simple. There's no complexity there. And that's, that's a lot of romance novels are like that obvious what the story is you'd be disappointed if there was a crazy twist and she didn't get the love interest or whatever you'd be like well this is a shit romance novel not what I signed up for uh I love doing them it's as I say very pure storytelling and I get to be everyone I get to direct myself I get to be like no that wasn't any good or did you know when I used to have the engineer and the director did you did this is what I was trying to get did you get that as the listener and so it's fun and it's particularly interesting to me given that I was so awful at voice that that's kind of a bulk of my day job is using my voice and none of the rest of the acting package that I thought was so brilliant but uh for many of the 10 years I didn't see it as part of acting at all I saw it as my day job that I did to make money so that I could make theater and it's only recently that I have become more aware of how you know I was like it's a day job that I've got because I'm an actor like they wouldn't go to just anyone but um it's not acting per se but more and more I'm coming around to the fact that it's closer to acting than I might have liked to have thought in the past do you do different voices when you play like when you're you're the only person there and there's a maid and all these other characters do you affect your voice in that way that almost like a kid telling a story yeah, I do. It's again, it's the it's the bold actor, not bold actor. I do. Lots of people don't. It's a choice. I would say it depends on the story. Like when I I, I narrated a couple of books of this amazing British athlete, her memoirs, uh, Chrissy Wellington. She's a triathlete, and for hers, because they were all real people, I did not do voices. I just kind of modulated pace and tone a bit. 
um, when, you know, and her coach said to her, you have to get up earlier in the morning. I would not do like, you have to get up earlier in the morning. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, um, whereas in the romance novels, because they are so much more of a trope, I do like the, the hero always has a deeper voice that is smooth and velvety and the heroine has my voice because obviously I'm all good things to be embodied and um, uh, the narrator's voice is slightly silkier than mine, slightly crisper, more Julie Andrews, less Polly Lee's lived in New York for 20 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> more hills are alive than exactly. uh, the, <laughs> the rent is due. <laughs> Uh, you talking to yeah. me you said more the hills are alive than you talking to me talking to me um yeah uh so um yes i do do voices for the romance novels and uh some of the kids books uh it's fun it's it's fun to kind of play around like that i did this amazing fantasy series which is about to be made into a movie actually called uh, The School for Good and Evil, which was for like mid-grade, I think uh, eight to 12 year olds. Really fascinating, really nuanced writing. And there I did a ton of voices and there were like talking woodpeckers and, you know, caterpillars that lived underground. And so I did. And, and when I started, I thought it was just gonna be the one book and then it turned into six books. And by the end of it, I was like, what the? I'd done like 500 voices and they were all crazy and like there was this weird like Bangladeshi woman who I tried to do the voice of and then it turned very racist and Welsh and I was like mm, so I've done the Bangladeshi character and it sounded very racist and ultimately then turned into a Welsh person and I don't know what to do about it and uh, the author was like just don't worry about it for that book and then the next one just do a normal voice <laughs> I was like you so much <laughs> poor choice a poor choice yeah um, it's much easier to forgive myself in that medium and be like okay well that was a poor choice whereas i feel like in theater the poor choices haunt me to this day yeah but they're not on camera for people to remember in well, theater. True. yeah yeah in people's true. memory they're etched in people's memory for all time I changed their opinion about live theater with my one poor choice. Totally, totally. They've signed up for Netflix, Hulu, and <laughs> Apple TV that it's night. A world pandemic so that no one ever had to go to the theater. Yes, exactly. Conspiracy. It's a conspiracy that one audience member in, you know, <laughs> East Asia that uh, <laughs> that um, basically hated you that, that one performance. So moving back to like on-camera stuff as a theater actress and and someone who's theatrically trained how did you adjust to be seeing yourself on camera and now that we put a lot of self-tape auditions that's pretty much how it works now how do you feel about seeing yourself on camera and have you been able to adjust and adapt your own insecurities and views and be able to objectively constructively criticize your your own performance and you know, maybe send a better take? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a good question, Austin. I hate watching myself. I hate it with a passion. Surprising to me because I am quite an egotistical human. I would think that I would love it, but no. And the self-taping thing has really backed me into a corner. I'm getting better at it slowly, but certainly it fills me with rage to have to self-tape. I'm like, aren't I doing enough? 
for no given, I have no job at the end of this that I also have to know how to light myself. And, you know, when the self tape comes with a list of instructions about, you know, make sure you're framed like this and that you've got it and you're like, this is your job. <laughs> like at least back in the day, I would go into your office. Everybody had the same shitty lighting, the same 12 year old assistant giving out directions. Like there was, a, there was an even playing field. Now this actor, who has a great lighting set up and an amazing casting director spouse to read with them. And, you know, you're just like, ah, it's so unfair. But um, that rage aside, then comes down to just looking at yourself. And I find it really difficult. I tend to just kind of rush through, you know, I do kind of two or three takes, like you were saying, I tend to trust my instincts. And by the time I put the camera on myself and call my husband away from having a joyful evening to himself to record me, I kind of know what I'm gonna do and I just kind of do it and try not to think too much about it. And then I try to upload it and send it off without looking at it too much. Um, I will say I'm very lucky like yourself to have a spouse who is in the business. And so oftentimes he'll give me a direction which I find very helpful and feel less alone in it. Like I feel like one of the things I've learned in pandemic times is that what I love about being an actor is the other people, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, the, the being alone part is, is not great for me. And why theater surprising to me, I didn't plan to be a theater actor when we were graduating. I wanted to do more TV and film but it's not surprising when I look back, given how much I like the community of theater that I stayed in New York and, and kept making theater, that it feels less isolating than the times that I've done TV and film feel very much like, oh. And you know, like my part on The Americans, I only got to be with other actors once. It was Matthew Reese, so well worth it, but I did all my work on my own. So maybe that's like the bulk of my experience, you know? So it's like maybe it's not so isolating when, you, when you're not just the worried mom or working in the phone room. Um, yeah, so the self-taping, I mean, I remember another theater actor saying to me that he forced himself to get good at watching his tapes. And I remember when he was saying it, just like feeling the bile in the back of my throat being like, oh God, no, no, I don't want to get good at watching myself. Um, but I think that's the future. And I think I just have to bear down and get better at it because- Accept and adapt it, right? Yeah. Accept and adapt. Exactly, exactly. I don't think in terms of kind of the purity of acting, I don't think it's good for actors to get good at watching themselves, but I think in terms of business, that's what it has to be. So that's my path. Yeah. When you, you talked about, you know, kind of rehearsing and then kind of getting in with your spouse and <laughs> doing the three takes, that rehearsal process, what is it about rehearsal that you enjoy? And is there an adjustment between doing TV where there's not really rehearsal with other actors, maybe you do a couple blocking rehearsals and then you shoot versus really working things out in a theater process and, and doing that. Is there, uh, I mean, as a theater actress, you must love rehearsal, it's an exploration. How do you incubate that into what you do when you work on film and TV? Is there a way to kind of transfer that 
that exploration? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that the exploration remains the same in that you've got the boundaries of the given circumstances of the story. And so you're just, oh, if I, like you're saying, if I, if I have this thought, how far does that go before it starts feeling inauthentic? How, like, I remember the scene I had in the Americans where I was supposed to be watching TV and you know, you're just staring at a light box <laughs> and you're like, is it satisfying just to stare or is it better to like create what I'm watching and watch it? Like, how do I want to do it? And the director kept like, it works better if your eyes aren't moving, you know, very technical direction. And so I just ended up kind of exploring like, what if I just think like, oh God, I'm so bored or, oh God, I'm not doing this right. And like, you know, like how far does that take me before this guy jumps in with another suggestion? Right. And in theater, I think it's more about collaboration for want of a better word. Like I think, you know, that on my own, I can come up with three great ideas of fun things or ideas. Whereas when you've got, you're bouncing off this person who's doing it this way. And this director is saying like, oh, the light's going to be off you at that point. Or, you know, like, or saying like, no, we're trying to tease out the humanity of this scene, you know, like, then that's inspiring. And I think what I've found, I think my big kind of COVID takeaway is that inspiration is the hardest thing to find, particularly as you get older. Like when you're younger, you're seeing things for the first time. So it's inspiring in itself. But as you get older, you're a bit like, okay, I've been here before. <laughs> you know, like, how do I, how do I stay invigorated? And how I stay invigorated is through inspiration and on set or in a rehearsal hall that inspiration always comes from the serendipity of other humans. And I think that my COVID takeaway, like the awful thing about COVID as somebody that was not touched by it, nobody I know died, the people I know that had it, had very mild cases of it, but that there was a year of no serendipity, of no inspiration, that every day had a kind of Groundhog Day quality to it. Um, and that was because there was no random bumping into people. <laughs> there was no human randomness. And both on set and in a rehearsal hall, that is what I'm looking for at this point is just human randomness. Like, tell me something that I can think about that is outside of my own head because I've had all the ideas I'm gonna have about this. And it doesn't even, the thing they have to tell me doesn't even have to be about the thing we're working on. It can be about their kid or their bicycle accident or whatever, like, you know, it, it, it's just about thinking about stuff that's outside of me. So chemistry is now defined as just other people talking to you. Yeah, human serendipity. Human contact. <laughs> Speaking about chemistry, is there, do you feel like it's something that is magic in the ether or it's something that is engineerable or that you can engineer chemistry between actors? When you're talking about theater, you're trying to kind of mount a cast that works well together. And that is about chemistry. It's about like how 
you know, all these puzzle pieces fit together. It's much harder in TV and film where the chemistry is either there or it's not. And you have to, as an actor, do your job to make it look like it's there. What do you think the spectrum of, you know, no chemistry to chemistry is? Do you think as a skilled actor, you can get to that chemistry part or that end of the spectrum where they call it chemistry, good chemistry is a magic land that people hope to be in by by happenstance. I think you can fake it. You as an individual can fake it. Um, If the person that you're faking it with is not faking it, you're fucked. Like, you know, they they at least have to, you at least have to have the shared chemistry. We got to create something here. Um, If you're working with a person who doesn't have an interest in that, there's very little that you can do except hope that they feature your reaction shots fully. (laughs) Um, uh, And I think the same is true on stage. Like you can only, the most ideal is that you have it naturally, that there is a connection, not necessarily that you want to make love to the person if they're not your partner, but that you have some kind of connection is the best. Um, That that's a piece that you don't have to work at. That just makes everything else more easeful. But as I say, yeah, I think it can be faked. I think it is more often than not faked that most people don't love, love each other. For me, when I'm faking it, I try to hone in on something that a piece of that person that I do love, love. (laughs) Uh, If I know them well enough to know that. I have been in situations where I've had to work with actors that I hate, you know, that, that, um, and usually it's not to do with their personality, but just, I think they're shitty actors. And so that makes it, then I'm working, I'm working double hard. Cause I'm like, I hope that what my tell is, is not this person is fucking awful actor. <laughs> you know, that I hope that my reaction shot is not like, what the fuck is that? That's your choice. <laughs> like, okay. Um, it has to be, oh, he's so cute. He can't act. Oh, but he looks good doing it. Just just look at the nostril and like think about someone whose nostril you love. Like it doesn't matter. Like, you know, and I think that's right. Like I think, I think you can generate it for yourself. You know, you can find something to love about everyone. You can find some chemistry if you're willing to work hard enough. If you're willing and you have the time, you can do it. But they have to participate too, like it's a tango, right? Like if they're not interested in it, then all your hard work is for naught. And I think that that in that case, there is a lot to be said for just trusting that you are your character and that they can hate this person in this moment where they're professing deep love or whatever the chemistry moment is that, that as we know from being in relationships, they're they hold all of that. You can love someone while you're like, what the fuck are you doing, man? <laughs> exactly. Like press record and read the fucking lines. <laughs> How hard is it? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I only went to school for six years to do it. <laughs> Support our family with it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, chemistry is a two-way street. Let's be honest. So, you know, whether it's there or not, both people have to be engaged and willing, uh, willing and able to to partake. 
I find in rehearsal and kind of tying these things together that improv and and that spontaneity and just using improv as either a end game or a rehearsal process is helpful for me, whether it's putting it in my own words, some mm -hmm. dialogue or talking to people as actors and yes, you're the character, but you know, ultimately you're talking as actors until you become the characters or find where the characters are, but yeah. you're still two actors or a couple actors, you know, a few actors working together. Do you use improv in your rehearsal process and how do you feel about it? Uh, I mean, I guess on stage there wouldn't be improv, but in film and TV as an end result of like, do you feel comfortable in that space of being able to, I mean, I guess the actor studio has prepared us well for that stuff, but do you okay. use it in rehearsal and are you comfortable with it, doing it on camera? Um, no, is the short answer. I, um, I can do it. I have been trained to use it. I know the benefits of it. I personally, in terms of our training, found that using gibberish and um, identifying your subtext more helpful, though I haven't often had a chance to use it in a professional setting, I think I would lean more towards that than uh, putting words where words exist. I've never worked on a project where the director has said like, you can just improv this scene, it's fine. Um, the TV shows I've worked on, they've been pretty to the point about using the scripted words, even, you know, after a tape being like, oh, you paraphrased or, you know, like, they want, for the most part, the shows I've worked on have wanted their words. In theater, I just feel nervous. Like, as I say, I've, most of the work I've done has been with new plays. So a lot of the rehearsal process has been about hammering out the play and figuring out like, what is this play about? And so improv would actually be more harmful than helpful to the director and the playwright. I can see if you were doing Shakespeare, if you were doing Chekhov, like extant works where you're trying to make very famous speeches, embody them, I think it would be helpful to do it. For me personally, I'd prefer to do it in private. Like I feel like that wouldn't be a shared improv. It would just be me trying to like get to the nuts and bolts of what this person is saying and why. And honestly, it's in theater, it's never come up in a rehearsal. Would anyone like to improv this scene? people tend to be much more precious about the words in theater. Um, I think if I was really blocked, if I didn't know, if I couldn't find the, the nuts and bolts, I might do it for myself again as homework. I don't know that I would do it in public. I, I feel very uncomfortable. I feel like that then gets into that realm of like being wrong, you know, that I was talking about with singing, like you can hit a flat note that then you're opening yourself up for people to be like yeah no it's not that and you'd be like oh that just came out of my soul <laughs> what do you mean it's not that <laughs> do you know what I mean um yeah an actress Rosemary Harris said to in a room that my husband was in that she felt that the director didn't get to talk about character talking about theater the character was the actor's domain the director got to talk about everything else and so she was like so just don't tell them what you're working on. It's not their business. And I feel like improv puts your business in someone else's hands. And that always gets dicey because I'm like, no, you can't tell me about the fundaments of this person. That's my, that's me. <laughs>
you can tell me where I should stand and how to enunciate more clearly or less clearly or however you want it but that improv stuff is so personal yeah and ultimately the person that is the character is you Polly or Austin ultimately they're seeing you and whatever you're doing inside is of your domain yeah. you know yeah. and, and I can see yeah. I can see why if I was making a movie I would want the actors to improv because I would I want what's inside right <laughs> like I want to see that on my film sometimes Whereas... sometimes <laughs> <laughs> um but I think it gets dicier in the theater yeah so no I don't in, in general I don't feel comfortable and uh, certainly in public settings I it doesn't it doesn't help at all I don't feel free like you were saying I don't feel I just feel more inhibited and more like oh god what am I giving away <laughs> exactly do you have a most memorable kind of on stage I mean you talked about Audrey and Little Shop of Horrors and that seems to stand out but do you have any standout experiences whether on film or filming a tv show or on stage that have been one of those kind of things that you always you know kind of go back to and you know it's almost like you tell a story about it you know working with a certain actor or actress do you have a moment like that or or an experience like that whether even in an audition well one of my most memorable moments on stage was in one of the first uh, off-Broadway shows I did in New York the scene was that we were it was me and Vincent Kartizer who uh, was a madman and a bunch of other stuff we were playing these two Mancunian prostitutes and we were we had finally given enough blowjobs to afford to be able to wash our clothes in the laundromat and so in the scene we're sitting there in our underwear on the washing machines doing our laundry. And uh, at the end of the scene, there's a blackout and our clothes for the next scene are inside the washing machine. So in the blackout, we're supposed to jump off the washing machines, get the clothes out, put them on, lights come up, we're in the next scene, which oh is on the street corner. And you guessed it, the one night we did the show and the costume person had forgotten to put the clothes into the washing machine. <laughs> So the lights came up and we were on the street corner, like the set had changed, but we were in our underwear <laughs> still. And we'd been in our underwear, so it wasn't like, oh, whoa, there's someone in their underwear. But we could not stop laughing. We just, we just, we, like the scene, <laughs> the play, the scene made no sense that like that audience must have been like, what the fuck was that fucking play? It was so weird. And like the ant the the antagonist supposed to come on and start a fight. And so she comes on and she was like, just like burst into laughter because we were standing there in our underwear. And um, the three of us just like fell out on stage for like, I don't know, it felt like days. It felt like days, but I mean, it must've been like two minutes. And then, you know, we finally, someone said the last line of the scene and then it all changed. And of course, like the costume assistant was like crying back. She was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And we just could not stop laughing. We could not, like, it was the work. Like, I just, I feel bad for those people that paid money to see that show that night because it was so unprofessional. We could not tell the story. 
What would have been really funny if you came out after the show and was still in your underwear? <laughs> Just like we've given up wearing clothes. Yeah. Um, but I would say that was one of my most memorable theater moments just because my entire training was like, you should be able to cope with this. Like this should be like, you should be in character enough at this point that you're like, yeah, no, we're just hanging out on the street. We're mad that our clothes got mangled up in the washing machine, whatever. It was awful. It was just bad. So I remember that one. And Little Shop of Horrors was obviously a gift. There have certainly been like moments where I'm like, oh, you know, like I remember in thesis week doing that birth of punk that Ben Rosenthal wrote and a prop fell off and like I was able to react in the moment in this very authentic way that I was very happy with and it was just seamless and I feel like things like that those little memories I think of a lot particularly when I'm struggling and it feels so technical and so like get the job make the money you know <laughs> like I think of those freer times where you were just like, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about a career. It was just about acting. Those are the inspirational moments that you do all this work for. And then those things kind of happen and you're ready to kind of roll with them seamlessly. Or in the case of being in your underwear, just enjoy it and not melt into a puddle on the in the middle right. of the, the performance. At least they were engaged in your reality of laughing. You're really laughing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the audience is probably like, what the fuck is happening? But we were definitely like, it would have been worse if we were like, what the fuck? Where are my fucking clothes? Or cried or like, we're just so nervous and like. <laughs> and we tried to get through the scene. We did. You made a valiant effort, apparently. lots of theater performance throughout the year, especially in New York, uh, because they aren't, they aren't on tape are talked about and they, you know, become mythologized and, um, you know, Mark Rylance and what is it, Jerusalem, like that type of stuff. Back in the day, Jessica Tandy and, uh, you know, Marlon Brando and Streetcar, like this is, these are the things that film and TV don't have, but there are still those actors in film and TV that are, the kind of gods of our craft in a, in a sense. Are there people in our industry, older, younger, that you look and hope to work with one day or you look and, and, and admire their work and- uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised by the kind of dramaturgical excellence of the younger people coming up. Like I've, um, particularly young women, like I've been, blown away in a lot of the rooms I'm in obviously are developing new plays so there's a lot of talk during the table work as opposed to it being about the acting of it about what the story is and how the story is being teased out and I think that a lot of the young people that I'm getting to be in rooms with are very astute dramaturgically are able to talk very keenly and intelligently about the text in a way that I have never been taught to or felt comfortable doing and so that's exciting to be around and then it's so hard I think being in the business now for as long as I have been to parse like what is actual excellence versus what is buzz like you know 
I think there are some very, very wonderful actors working at the moment, but... Um, it's so subjective, really. I mean, it's all opinions, but I'm just, it's more about what your, your opinion of who you, who you look to their work as, as a model or a person you'd like to work with. Yeah, there's a wonderful actor who's uh, about my age, I think, called Janine Sorales, whose work, she's in the bold actor camp. Um, she m makes wonderful choices that are strong yet so nuanced and she can be hilariously funny and very full of pathos. Um, and she just, she's really smart and really impulsive. And it's very exciting to see her on stage always. And so I'm always excited when I see that she's working to see plays that she's in. And I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to that. Like, you know, in the new plays world, you're always kind of gambling on what the play is. It's not King Lear, right? So you're not like, okay, I know the story I'm gonna see. I wonder what choices they're gonna make in it. And I find that for my taste, it's always that trick of like, you do your best acting, but your job also in new plays is not to outshine the play, right? That if people walk out of the play being like, that actor was amazing then you're kind of not doing the best survey. Like you're stealing the focus from the play and your job is to deliver the play so that it can be the next King Lear so that they can see someone else in it <laughs> and be like, oh, that's interesting that she made that choice instead of that other choice that we saw. Um, yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is it's hard to know, but performances that I tend to like are very behavioral, very um, uh, seemingly, not conscious that someone is just being right and yet dramatic bold there's an element that is larger than life that that isn't oh i'm looking at this person through their own window at their private life <laughs> yeah you know someone the, said uh someone that thinks loudly but speaks softly <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's what my friend just said i, I always want to like think loudly and speak softly on camera make yeah. bold choices, but they're more internal and evident um, than having to put it all on the line. I like that a lot. Think loudly, speak softly. I'll Any playwrights it. or writers or directors uh, that you have yet to work with, whether on film or on stage or on TV? Oh my gosh. Um, I'm very excited by, well, she's made the transition to TV, but Tracy Scott Wilson, do you know her? I know the oh. name, yeah. And I've probably seen some TV. I've watched pretty much everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, she uh, was a playwright in downtown theater and now has made the transition to TV and film. Molly Smith Metzler is a playwright whose play, I first saw her when I was doing Bob at Humana Peter's play. Uh, she wrote a play called LMNOP. I think she's discussing kind of class in a fascinating way for this country. Uh, is really nuanced and passes the difficulties of it and how it intersects with race and how it doesn't. Like I did a play of hers two years ago. It was about <laughs> ironically new parenthood and how that plays across financial boundaries, right? Like the experience of 
being a working mom as a poor person versus a incredibly wealthy person and what happens to the person in the middle and you know um so I think she she's one that I'm watching I'm excited she's also making a transition she just show ran her first show they wrapped two days ago that I think will be interesting um directors I mean there's a whole new crop always coming up I worked with a wonderful woman now again almost two years ago Tara Ahmadinejad who is she runs her own theater company and then she also directs freelance in the theater and I think she just has an amazing ear and eye um, that it was very exciting to be in a room with her as I say in new plays the director's job is so much more about teasing out the playwright's intention than the actor's intention that it's you do feel more like a, a an onion than a chef um, again but as I say I feel like the director's job at least in theater is to provide inspiration and she was one that was very inspirational to work with what is it about acting that you love that you know keeps you coming back for more and 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 sticking with this craft after 20 plus years as i say i think fundamentally it now has become just a to greater understand the human that is me and the humans that are around me um yeah it's about the human psychology angle of it and what stories do for us as humans I think that's what keeps me coming back. I, I mean, I think I'm trying to sift through my own personal baggage and acting as a way to do that too. Um, one of the things that my husband and I talk about all the time is the fact that it's the perfect business if you feel like you're someone who's not enough. It's the sweet spot of a job for you because that's exactly, they wouldn't, if you felt like you were enough, you wouldn't keep coming back. So, <laughs> and, uh, so true. And, and they need people that don't feel like they're enough because uh, because that's interesting to watch because that's most human. So if you've got a bigger dose of that, then you're going to do well as an actor. And I think that's been true this past year, just because acting is kind of their own therapy, working through their own shit, but it's not really therapy. It's more closely related to therapy for people to watch other people <laughs> go through that crap, you know? Therapy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's yeah. like if you were a therapist who invited people <laughs> to watch your therapy <laughs> sessions, those people would benefit sometimes more than the actor that yeah. thinks he's doing therapy and getting paid for it as opposed to paying for it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I remember um, in our class, Jason O'Dell Williams saying very frustratedly that he thought that acting wasn't therapy. And I remember in my mind being like, yeah, but it is though. And if it isn't, you're not doing it right. Like, <laughs> it might not fix it, but at least you get to investigate it, you know? Um, and I do, I definitely think that's, it does, it does a lot for my ego, the acting that I keep coming back for. It does a lot for me personally. And in this COVID time, I've been definitely exploring and thinking a lot about the social component of it and how for my personality type it's the exact right amount of intimacy making plays with people making tea like you get to share of your soul but not be that person's best friend that at the end of the day you're like bye 
you know, and it's the thing that I've missed that, you know, in COVID times, my only social interaction has been with my husband, who obviously knows me more intimately in many ways than I know myself, but also I know him that intimately. Whereas in theater, there's a distant, like they're not your best friend. They do go to their own houses at the end of the day. And when the show's over, you love that person fiercely. You've shared a lot with them, but you don't see them sometimes for years on end. And then you see them and you're like, oh my God, I love you. Right. <laughs> and that, and there, to me, that's a safety. There's a safety in that. I definitely have missed that and realized like what a deficit. Everything in my life is professional, but I don't have any hobbies, Austin. <laughs> it's like, what person goes into COVID with no hobbies? Like, I was like, thank God I have a child to raise. I'd be going insane if I, you know, like that has been my job for a year. That, that my job is my social life, my job is my hobby, my job is myself, my, you know, without it. I was like, man, I need to like learn how to crochet or something, like something wrong with me. <laughs> I had a similar realization, but my hobbies include other people and being outside and, you know, engaging <laughs> with people. So that was cut off. And uh, those hobbies that I wasn't able to do and the hobby that I do for a career and, you know, my sustenance and my joy was taken away. So that's pretty much in a nutshell what I, <laughs> I've been exploring through this time as well. Part of what we've been talking about is, that, you know, who you are as a human and who you are as an actor or an actress and uh, where in the twain, what is, what is that? <laughs> Never the twain shall meet. But we're like, what's the difference? <laughs> like we're, we're both, we're both. So with that being said, is is there something as a human and speaking about like your life goals and how do they align with like your career goals and and how do you bring that into your work, those those kind of super objectives of your life? Yeah. Um it's a very good question. I think it's to do with resilience and forgiveness that those are the things that I struggle the most with, that I don't, I do well when things are handed to me on a plate. I don't do well when I have to like go back and work a bit harder. And I think like the, the personality traits that I have that, that I bring to my characters are an attempt to be as, it's not even non-judgmental, as positively judgmental as possible. Kindness, generosity, I think those are things that I have in abundance in my life. And that I had a TV director tell me once that I was very kind and that you could see that on television. And uh, I think about that a lot because I get to play a lot of not kind people. <laughs> And so I wonder like, oh, did I get this job just because fundamentally that even when I say really scary, mean stuff, people are like, oh no, she's a kind person, <laughs> it's okay. Um, so I think that's, that's in there. And then, you know, in the kind of therapy way, the things that I'm working on, like it wouldn't be interesting to me if it was easy, if it was just, you know, rinse and repeat. Uh, that's what's been hard about the COVID life. Like I, I need the change up that, that for 
the part of myself that is like, I just want stability. I just want stability. This crazy artist life, it's too unstable. You can't raise a family in this instability. And then you're like, oh God, the idea of like going into the same office and seeing the same 10 people every day, it wouldn't work for me. Yeah, it would not work for me. And so I'm like, oh, I have to marry those parts, the part of me that wants to be stable and give my kid this like rock solid foundation has to meet with the person that can't do that and and has to say well maybe rock solid foundations aren't the only thing that kids need that said it's been wonderful to have a year with no work pressures to be with a toddler it's a great time to great age to be a parent of and to not feel guilty you know that I've been able to sit in my house in the country and not be like oh why didn't I get that audition or you know, where was my call? <laughs> yeah, um, there were no auditions. So you didn't have to worry about it. You didn't go on Facebook and get all kinds of schadenfreude. It was like, yeah, no one's working. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the evil comes out. <laughs> She's so nice, but underneath it all. <laughs> That's why I get the evil parts. The question is in the niceness. Yeah, um, yeah I, uh, yeah. So my humanity like I think I'm I think I'm in the game because I'm interested in what my humanity is and I think I stay in the game because it is ever evolving and changing and the more humans I meet the more I get to reflect back to myself who I might be who what my potential could be and how I can get there you know I've I've recently grabbed a hold of this quote it's progress not perfection and I feel like the first 10 years of my career, I was striving for perfection. And now I'm like, oh, no, it, you just the beauty of this job is that you get to be ever expansive. You get to just like a toddler lean, lean into what you feel curious about today. And I can do that off stage or on. It's nicer when I get to do it and get paid, too. But, you know, of course, isn't everything <laughs> you got more choices when you got more money. Exactly. If you were to change one thing about the business, what would it be? What's your least favorite aspect of this business? We've talked about auditioning and how that works, but is there something about the way the business and the structure of it have worked in your career that you would change? And is there a way that you would specifically change it to maybe be more amenable to all and especially you i think ours is a business that you are more likely to succeed in as you define that the more financial privilege you have and i think that's a shame because i don't think that talent knows the checkbook but I just look around me and I see that my colleagues who have either uh, made a lot of money very early in their careers and therefore are independently wealthy or have financial backing from their spouses or their uh, parents, they do better. They have more time to explore who they want to be in the business. They have more time to explore the business. They have more uh, money to spend on classes, to buy FaceTime with people that are interesting to them. 
And um, I think that's profoundly unfair. And so I think a, a choice that I, I would, if I could change anything, I would instigate some kind of uh, universal basic income for artists so that everyone who had a union card had health insurance, didn't have to uh, wither away behind a desk or looking after other people's kids or make the choice of like, do I go to that audition, that one line on some TV show that I don't really from my craft need to say, but it would be a thousand dollars in the bank or do I go to my day job and that pays me regularly? And I just think that's a criminal choice to have to make if you're an artist, when the choices you should be making should be like, do I wanna say that one line for a thousand dollars or do I wanna go to a session and hear Ellen Burstyn say inspirational words, for instance. So yeah, I, I, I think that would be the one thing I change, I think. And I think as I've been in the business, it's become more and more like, you know, if you go to Yale, Juilliard or NYU, you will have a career. And if you don't, it will be very, very hard for you to get ahead. And it's become more in line with a capitalist situation than when I started. There, it was still possible. And I think for our older peers um, and colleagues, it was even less the case, you know, that, that I remember doing a show at EST with, uh, I was the only girl in a show with like eight old white guys. And they had all only acted since they were in their twenties. And one of them went to a fancy school, but the rest of them just kind of cobbled it together and hobbled through. But there were so many more of those smaller agencies were able to get you seen for, you know, none of them were famous, famous, but they were all, they all had had steady careers. And I just think that's not possible for so many people that even kind of steadily working actors, I know people I profoundly respect and think their artistry is amazing, work day jobs and struggle and, you know, are like juggling their corporate training with their off-Broadway career and there is no like switching into you know a soap opera and then coming back and doing another off-Broadway show you're on the soap track you're on the off-Broadway track you're on the and it just seems so corporate to me in a way that I don't think is healthy for artists for sure nor do I think is healthy for the output of the performance industry as a whole. Yeah, that's it's so interesting because major league sports like baseball and and other sports have profit sharing, which you know purely means the small market teams uh, don't get left out in the cold, and the the teams that you know like the Mets and the Yankees and the Red Sox that make the most money, there's a a system in place that makes sure everyone's starting the season at, at a similar level. You know, there's yeah. obviously a, a dividing line, but it, it reminds me of that that movie Cradle Will Rock that Tim Robbins did years ago about the National Theater and 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 you know and the, the years the New Deal. Yes, yeah. right, the New Deal and and the National Theater and having an arts system in place on a national level. You know, I'm sure other countries and Moscow Art Theater, those you know people. <laughs> Theatre of Great Britain. Yeah, no, definitely. Yes. I think um, there are there are a great many people in uh, actors' equity in our business that are lobbying currently the administration to have a 
cabinet position for the arts, given the revenue that they bring in. And I think that's smart. I'm behind that uh, movement. Um, but I think for individual artists, I don't know how much of a difference that would make. I think that a universal income would be more helpful just in terms of what we were talking about earlier about how your money works, about how you can make choices within that. If you know, like part of the great thing about this year has been this extended unemployment that, you know, isn't masses amounts of money. We certainly couldn't live on it forever. But you're like, if you know that you have $300 coming in every week, it's not enough to live, but at least you can start making choices. <laughs> you can be like, okay, so we shouldn't spend $300 on groceries. We should spend $150 on groceries. Right, and it's one less day you would have to work another job or exactly. all that stuff. Yeah. That's kind of my, my thought about that is that either the unemployment structure needs to change or the universal basic income needs to be adopted. Um, but particularly with artists in mind, just that it, and I think, I mean, I think in general, it would be good for America if you could just say like, there's a standard of living that no American should fall below. <laughs> to be ashamed of ourselves and not blame them, but that's yes. Blame us as a country and a community. Um, it's almost like favored nations, which is just everyone on a project gets paid the same. Mm -hmm. across the country and across art. But there definitely have would have to be, I think, some sort of minimum training, minimum level of entry into that income hierarchy or plateau where- Yeah, I agree. You, and I yeah. think there should also be a top out that like, you know, if, like I think a lot about, there's this actor housing in New York, um, which is, you know, it's the rent structure is income based. So if you have a great year, you pay more rent the next year. If you have a shitty year, you pay ne less rent the next year. And I feel like something like that would work so that if you, you know, your show did go to syndication, strangely, you wouldn't get the $300 every week from the government. That would not be fair. That would go to someone else who needed it. Like, it seems like you could get into the nitty gritty of how it worked. And I agree, like, you can't just be like, oh, I'm an artist thanks for the money, um, you, you would have to do something, jump through some hoops to prove that you were you had skin in the game. But um, I think the elitism of art at this moment in time, or particularly of our art, not, I can't speak for visual arts or musicians, but um, it just, it feels like it's not good for business. Well, it's been, Amazing talking to you, catching up with you and having you uh, for this really in-depth discussion and in a different way than I've had before. And uh, hopefully together as actors and artists, we could make progress. <laughs> and knowing that life is never gonna be perfect and that we're never gonna be perfect, that we may have moments of perfection and inspiration and, uh, onion dip, <laughs> onion soup. Uh, I love French onion soup. You gotta say, yeah. it. I love French onion soup. Lots of the gruyere. Yes, exactly. But uh, thank you so much for, you know, talking with me and uh, um, being on Actor Speak and I miss you. And uh, I'm sure my dad misses you as well <laughs> uh, as the father of cohort five. Uh, but thank you, and uh, I, I look forward to the next 20, 25 years of your career. Thank you. The questions were really thought-provoking and really um, 
gave me the human serendipity I was looking for, the, the, the kind of um, journey that I've been hankering for this year. Um, it's been really wonderful to uh, think about acting in such a pure way. I think it hasn't been since school that I've been able to kind of reckon with it separate from the business of it, which is obviously a very different beast entirely. So it's been, it's been um, inspiring to me. So thank you. And that's, and that's purely why I'm doing it for you, but for me as well, it's a selfish, but this is basically my way of cornering someone on set and having a two hour conversation with them about purely acting and not letting the craziness of the world interrupt that, uh, but only inform it. So thank you. Thank you again. Lovely. Thanks again to Polly Lee for speaking with me, and thank you for listening. And thanks to my lifelong friend Jason Liebman and up-and-coming musical prodigy Dylan Hazen for composing and producing the Actor Speak intro music and theme song. It pays to have talented people in your life, and I'm extremely grateful for this sweet tune. One last note. I want to give a special shout out to Jenny Josephson for her guidance in conceiving and producing this podcast. Thanks for all your advice, patience, and support. Subscribe to Actors Speak on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, you'll be eligible to win some cool Actors Speak swag. Once again, thank you for listening. This was Actors Speak.